0: Welcome to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci. This podcast is about demystifying hormonal issues and struggles, and the, the title of today's episode, What is Sobriety in 2020? Most people think of sobriety as not drinking, but for anyone who has been in recovery, it has a depth of meaning. It is multifaceted. Alcohol is normalized in our society. We self-medicate to ease stress. We self-medicate to ease anxiety. We self-medicate to connect in social situations. I had listened to a TED Talk with uh, Jolene Park, and she talked about gray areas of drinking. And she stated that we don't need to have a rock bottom. People are choosing to stop drinking, not because they have to. It's a choice. I've worked with a lot of clients that have made the decision to get sober in my office or those in the throes of recovery coming to see me for acupuncture and nutritional counseling, and others who have been sober for years and decades, sponsoring other 12-step individuals in recovery. And some people choose rehab and a variety of therapies and programs to achieve sobriety. And whatever gets that person there, whatever works is what works. Sobriety is not just about abstinence. It's a way of being in the world that extends to every aspect of who we are. So today I feel extremely honored. I have two wonderful guests joining me. Timo Ellis, he is on the line from Brooklyn, New York, my hometown. Timo, so good to have you here. Hi. Thank you, Meg. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. And I have Jill Rowley sitting next to me in the studio, a local from Charleston. Uh, We met in an Orange Theory class a couple of months ago. Really clicked, really bonded, and so honored to just have you be here, my love. So, um, Timo, I'd love to start off the podcast with your story that you shared with me a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think so many people can relate to this, so please. Okay, great,
1: thank you. All right, so uh, I was just trying to figure out I'm trying to I've been thinking about how to synopsize it because it's <laughs> it's long, but I can I can do the you know so the uh, I can do the bullet point, long version, uh, short version of a long version. basically, all right, so uh, gr- born in born and raised in New York City generally sensitive, very sensitive young person, little, little boy, um, a sort of tumultuous household, um, not physically abusive, but occasional emotion, you know, not occasional sort of regular, uh, tenor of emotional abuse in my house leading up to the acrimonious divorce of my parents when I was 11 years old. During that time, uh, there was a, and there was what, there was basically one sexual abuse experience I had with a family acquaintance when I was eight and then, uh probably that coupled with the, parent, the, the, the the fiery train wreck of the divorce of my parents, um, you know, all, all cumulatively just you know kind of manifested in me by the time I reached the point where I uh you know, even when there were, there was med- self-medicating was available to me, which was in my freshman year of high school, I basically uh you know. I, I I very extremely enthusiastically like embraced it because <laughs> mm. I I just needed relief, you know. Mm. I think I remember the first time I got high, uh, just smoking pot when I was uh, fourteen. I remember it was like a revelation for me. I was like, I remember writing in my journal. I was like, now I can finally bear my life, you know. Wow. So it was really, really, it was super intense for me. It was like, I mean, I said actually, it was that. It was the the, the sentence that preceded that was. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> so wow. it was really, I, I guess I really, I really needed some uh, just emotional relief. Anyway, there was then in, in high school, you know, g- generally it was just uh, still kind of uh, explosively acting out and <laughs> just wild, you know. Um, there was another, so, you know, without getting into it, reasonably horrible sexual abuse experience that happened when I was sixteen with a stranger who I met just randomly, um, who ended up raping me. Um, and so, and, uh, while I was tripping on acid, so that was really fucking horrible. Pardon my, my quotes. No, that's okay. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so the thing is, is that my childhood coupled with the general alienation and the con- and also not really, not really feeling plugged into, uh, my, even my school community and also not really having a, a, you know, even some kind of firm idea about what I wanted to be who I wanted to be or what, what I was, you know, what sort of my purpose, my, my mission was. And, uh, you know, generally just out of control, wild teenage, uh, you know, hedonistic mm-hmm. escapist slash hedonistic behavior. Um, eventually I hit the, the bottom, I hit the wall when, uh, my senior year of high school, I got actually got arrested, uh, in the Phoenix airport just for smoking pot. Um, I, I went to like a kind of a liberal arts boarding school in central Arizona, which was actually the second I had actually gotten expelled from my first high school for this, this uh, the aforementioned type of wild behavior. Uh, I had to repeat my sophomore year of high school. Um, but uh, anyway, so the thing is, is that for, I had to do urine analysis for the state of Arizona in order to have the charges not to, to, to have the charges dropped against me. I was uh, um, I was eighteen years old. I had already been a full blown cocaine addict and an alcohol, I mean, more excessive smoke, crack smoking cocaine, alcohol pot, um, ecstasy, pills. This is just during, during from the ages of 14 to 18. So um, I already very, very much had like a, you know, like a, you know, a sort of an epiphanal moment that first time. And then I decided, this was on January 29th, of 1989, that I wanted to try to get sober. I had to stay be sober for at least 30 days. In order to pass this drug test, not to have charges brought against me, so for that, what I call, what I would call sobriety 1.0, lasted about three and a half years um, th- through through the middle of college for me. The truth is, is that like uh, I, for me personally, like I, uh, it's, w- where I lived in Arizona, there wasn't like an actual uh, available network to me of like young people in recovery. Mm-hmm. The meetings that were available to me were like. Uh, first of all, it was primarily it was entirely Alcoholics Anonymous, which wasn't really my you know the sort of milieu that I was yeah. primarily involved in. But uh, so it was also like a bunch of like people that were like fifty years older than me, so I couldn't really really relate. Even though I'm not really blaming uh, my you know my choice and that my inability to be able to connect with the program at that time, um, but you know especially at that time. So I was sober, but the the, the point I'm trying to make is that like I actually didn't really get, I didn't actually get the help that I needed other than with one therapist that I had during the first six months of my sobriety during my last, the last half of my senior year of high school. So basically I went from that. Um, I went from my, I got, I got sober for the first time. I last, uh, the, you know, my senior year of high school, it lasted about three and a half years. But the truth is in retrospect is that I actually wasn't getting the help that I needed. Yeah. And I also really didn't have the kind of a, the, the wisdom or the sort of ambition coupled with the wisdom at the time to be able to 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 kind of and really more deeply investigate like really what was compelling me to even have gone that far to begin with so in the wake of a disastrously painful and just just extremely weird triangular you know just a just horrible uh you know, like a disaster with my first girlfriend and her fiance and they got back together and she cheated on me and he and I were in a band together. And it was a, extremely strange and also just abusive and, and all crazy. Uh, in, the, in the wake of that, uh, at 23, I was like, you know what? I'm sick of quote unquote sobriety. And I said, fuck it. And I basically went out for another 12 years after that. Mm. Um, like this is the thing in, in, retro, in retrospect, I know after about a year, after about a year and a half of being back out, going back out, mm-hmm. I'd moved back to New York. I'd started playing music professionally with various people. And uh, one of my uh, you know, particular late-night cocaine binges, I think it was probably like 10 o'clock in the morning, and I, I made like a little weird sort of uh, audio journal for myself, where I was just trying to bear witness for myself, going like just basically, I I still have it. I I found it, which is fascinating. Wow. It's tragically, it's it's very sweet, but it's extremely sad. I mean, it's very almost it's funny now, but it was it's also kind of tragic. But uh, uh, at the time, I was basically saying to myself, was only a year and a half back in, that I was already kind of at that point. But, and then I didn't actually finally hit the bottom again and quit for another 11 years. It was 11 years later. How that I old finally, were you
0: at the time? Because right now, my understanding, you've been sober for 12 to 13 years, Tim? Yes. Okay.
1: Um, yes. I it was basically so. I got a during the whole, I was still working, playing music professionally, and also built, built, started a, built my, founded my own commercial music company. So I think, thankfully, I have kind of a very, a uh, super intense, like a uh, work ethic mm-hmm. and an art making work ethic, which uh, thankfully prevented me from completely, totally destroying my life or becoming homeless or whatever. But I came definitely came close several times, not only in terms of having regularly decimating my health, but also just like becoming coming dangerously close to not being able to pay my rent for several months. But I was able, by the skin of my teeth, to just not completely, totally destroy my life over a period of from, from during that 11 years, it was finally culminated. Um, in a there, there, I would, I would do like, I would do like alternating waves of cocaine binging and ecstasy binging for like six months or eight months at a time. And then with ecstasy, I could actually go to bed, you know, at a reasonable hour with cocaine. Obviously it's complete haywire. You can just, you you can go to bed at 3 PM the next day or whatever, you know, if you really get out of control like I was, but, uh, it basically, like, um, in, in the last few years, in the last two years of my non-sobriety, like, I started to actually, uh, I think my ner- ner- nervous system and my, you know, and my, my, my mental acuity started to fray. Somewhat significantly, because I was also in sort of terrible health. My diet was horrendous. I mean, I didn't even drink water for years. I mean, honestly, my diet was so bad. It's a miracle I'm going to knock on something. that's a miracle that I didn't die from just my diet, because at a certain point, I was just eating like sliders and <laughs> fish sticks and
0: like you know. I know Starbucks you know. crumb cakes. I remember you know, that, that kind of
1: that was exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that was, that was that's on the relatively healthy side. Anyway, so so this is leading into in, in the uh, in the final in the final. In the final year, basically, a year and a half, I started to actually uh, have a series of these kind of cocaine-induced like, sort of psychotic episodes, like paranoid-induced psychosis, which you hear about. I mean, it's almost like a cliche, but I would become fully – like it totally, fully embodied, convinced that the cops were after me or that Homeland Security was going to break down my door and blow my brains out. These flights of paranoia that were really – you know, I think I might have mentioned to you. Sometimes, you know, you know the feeling yeah. if you're possibly out staying in the country for if you haven't been in the city for a while, and like you hear a noise and you think like a serial killer is going to jump in or something. You know, that kind of like little moment of fear-based paranoia is the kind of thing. If you're sober, you can kind of talk yourself out of. You know, you can kind of go like, oh, and you can just calm your nervous system enough to go to sleep or whatever. In this case, it was in, um after after doing cocaine for ten to fifteen hours straight. Your ability to be able to, to to rein those flights of paranoia in just completely is gone and so it would spin out and so it it's like it has a feeling of like losing touch with reality, which is what happened you know so there was a series of those incidences which were really really fucking scary actually and like yeah. they, they got they got they got sort of more and more pronounced, culminating in the the, 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 the one the finally the one which I played a show with my band I had been partying with my, my friends and my then girlfriend. Uh, like in, in some stairwell of <laughs> the building in the East Village until 10 a.m. I went back to my apartment, snorted a whole eight ball of coke in one line, and just basically had a full blown uh, cocaine induced paranoid psychotic like anxiety attack. And uh, I just freaked out, and I was basically a, I was convinced that I was going to die, and that I was about to get murdered by cops, and that the the, the, the actual final that that, that particular experience. I was so I was so literally mortified that I was actually um, uh, there was like a little dividing wall in my studio apartment that like that, you know, in the main room of my apartment that faced the front door of my apartment, which is actually a storefront apartment. So it uh, opens up onto the street. I was laying down on the floor, like waving a white T-shirt, like surrendering to these cops, the SWAT team that I thought was outside. And this is the, the fascinating and, and I think inexplicable part is that in this moment, after doing that for a while, like something just like, something just snapped or shifted. And I heard this disembodied voice coming from just my own consciousness, but that wasn't my own voice. It had the tenor. It had had the, it had the, uh, it had the character of another person who just said, uh, just said, and and literally the words were this is like, look who you've become. This is who you've become. And then like, I just, it was like getting, it was like getting throttled by another energy, like shaken. And I got up and I walked outside and I saw that there's no one there. I was convinced that there was a car full of explosives. When I opened the door, there was not only there's no car of explosives, there's no car there. And not only that, I had Venetian blinds. So there's no possible way that anybody could see. in. it's not like the windows were open at all. So in that moment, I walked outside, which I would have for the previous several hours would never have dreamed of having the courage to override this intense paranoia i got up and i walked outside and i opened the door and saw that was no one there and in that moment that same voice said you're done like third person you're done so i was like whoa and i went to the deli i actually bought six beers just to bring myself down drank them all and then uh I uh, went to sleep at around two or three p.m. Woke up in like the following morning, and uh, even though, I, I, as I can describe, we can talk about later, mm-hmm. I ended up not, uh, you know. Well, this is an important, just a little yeah. bit of uh, other backstory leading in the in the last year of my non sobriety, I had started to just online investigate rehabs because I I knew how dangerously out of control I was. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get help. I'm going to actually have to get um, some support because left to my own devices, this is what's happening, you know? So anyway, in the following, in the following weeks of that, that that was December 19th, 2007, that, 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 that's my, that's that day. Um, and so in the following days and weeks, I ended up finding a, a CBT cognitive behavioral based rehab in Clearwater, Florida, that I ended up booking a 28 day session for, for myself over, the Christmas holiday, because I actually had professional obligations that I didn't want to uh, abandon. And the truth is, is also at the time I was extremely embarrassed and ashamed of it and I, about it. And I didn't want anybody to know that I was going to rehab because mm-hmm. I was just extremely embarrassed of having mm-hmm. let myself get so dangerously out of control that I, I needed to like uh, check myself into, uh, you know, a uh, rehab. Um, but the thing in this case, the uh, uh, as a means of Just grounding myself in sanity and reality, and for emotional support, I ended up going to AA meetings for the first thirty days of my sobriety, and then roughly, literally thirty days after I got sober is when I went to rehab. So I'd I'd already been, um, I'd already been sober for thirty days. Technically, when I went to rehab, which some, some, sometimes is perhaps unusual, but uh, anyway. So the truth is, is that like, since so that that was a. And I went to rehab for three days, which was fascinating and incredible and extremely humbling and like a mm. super powerful and like a you know just restorative in like a, some really profound life-saving ways. Um, and then so that you know that that was that was the beginning of 2008. Around a few months after that, I finally undertook to to find a therapist, because I was like, okay, like, i you was know, sort of like, what was that all about? So the, the, in terms of the, the evolution since then, like, I ended up going intermittently to AA, just as I said, for the kind of ambient kind of community support aspect of it. Because the truth is, in the New York community, the, the, the funny thing is, is actually when I went to my first one, one of these first meetings when I got back to New York after rehab, I walked in and I saw thirty people who were like Timo, you lived. Oh <laughs> so it was God. almost like it was almost like showing up at a high school where I knew a lot of people already. or Was something, that the Perry is, Street? Oh, that was on uh, that was the French Church on Sixteenth Street. Okay, um, in between uh, 6th and seventh, you know, right right on the same block as my old apartment. Actually, oh wow, uh, I know where that enough. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, the thing is, is that I ended up. This is another conversation I also don't want to take up too Mm -hmm. much longer, if at all. But, like, the thing is, is that I end up not, for a variety of reasons we can talk about, I ended up not, uh, essentially not being a program, an AA person in terms of an actual full-blown advocate for that methodology and the practice. Um, In retrospect, uh, and and partially and largely because of the rehab that I went to, which wasn't opposed to it, but primarily the... uh, you know the, the, the whole the methodology of the rehab that I went to wasn't primarily conceptualized around a higher power now the uh, the truth is is that I've gotten older and as years have passed, I've developed more of a uh, you know like a little bit of a deeper intellectual and kind of an intuitive understanding about you know, the kind of efficacy of that in ways that I totally didn't relate to when I got sober because I was, it was, it was primarily framed. It was primarily conceptualized cognitively in terms of just changing my behavior, as opposed to any of the kind of some of the deeper and more mysterious kind of spiritual yes. dimensions of life in the mind and everything like that. So, um, at the same time, like, uh, I personally, if, a uh, you know, again, like you like you said in, in your introduction, like, you know, whatever ways one can like wrangle themselves out of the gutter, and also exactly. re-so- resocialize themselves, and to heal their woundings and also just to you know to 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 heal themselves themselves also within their communities and their families. Yes. Whatever route you take to do that, obviously is like I'm not, I'm not going to disparage that, or I wouldn't debate that. But on a philosophical and personal level, I still have some. Were issues with it, and some reluctances with it, which are my own personal uh, philosophical sort of uh, outlook. Um, At the same time, so that and and you know, so the all all the with you know with just just to in terms of all the typical kinds of like stops and starts and uh, regressions and evolutions that happen as a result of like just trying to like learn how to think and walk and talk and feel again after decades of being deeply intoxicated. It's the normal, it would be, it's the, to be expected like the normal kind of, uh, you know, process of people like, uh, making mistakes and just not necessarily being in touch with their themselves completely, which over time with the help of, uh, th- uh therapy, ther- therapy is probably the thing that I would, I would characterize as the, the kind of cornerstone of my program, you know? And, uh, I was very careful. I want to be very careful in this context, not to, you know, I didn't make my therapist into like a, like, you know, some uh, outsized mentor for myself. I was always very conscious of wanting to make sure that I didn't like a, um, you know, that I, I wanted to be very mindful about the kinds of advice that I was even seeking out or the counsel that I was seeking out and and also to, uh, you know, not place an undue amount of uh, uh faith in one person particularly thankfully i have pretty good uh, i have a lot of experience in therapy so yeah. i was reasonably rigorous about the choices i made of mm-hmm. people and now i have a uh and ended up with a uh my primary therapist who i met in a group therapy situation which was also mind-blowingly incredible and also you know really it's a, that's a it's a it's another really fascinating story but i have an amazing i have an amazing therapist now, who is uh, just super brilliant and uh, is actually extremely progressive, and, and in a way is not even traditionally like a Freudian psychoanalysis based. And so, anyway, I, I've always, I, I guess, i, I relatively, I'm still on the fringe a little bit of what would be conven- you know, the conventional like uh, uh, ideologies of sobriety for other reasons, which we can talk about. Yeah. But uh, anyway, getting sober was, was and remains to be the best possible thing I could have done in my entire life. And I advocated for it for everybody because it's the fucking greatest.
2: <laughs> Amen.
0: Was,
1: yeah, cheers. Sorry, sorry if that was long-winded. No, well,
0: uh, it's, I think it's, it's powerful. It's significant. It's, it's important. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is that healing is not an intellectual journey. you got to drop down into the heart to really embrace your recovery. Yeah. And that takes, you know, working with people that you can really trust. And you trusted yourself. And thank God for that external voice that spoke to you uh, yes. at down in Red Hook. Yeah. Yeah. So... Totally. Uh, and I, I just want to share with people, I know Timo. Timo came to see me for acupuncture probably when I first started practicing. And at around, it was 2000, 2001, uh, Timo produced and recorded a CD that I had made. And I, to this day, was probably one of the most wonderful creative experiences and we did some recording after that and i'm hoping to pursue some fun stuff with you this is an amazing creative wonderful you're gonna i'm gonna get choked up you're one of the you have such a big heart thank you i love you so courageous for everything that you've done and you continue to do so thank you beautiful you gotta
1: play them your music
0: I will maybe we'll use it as an intro for for this podcast. It's it's so
1: good. It's crushingly great.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So Jill. Um, sorry, I'm sorry, Jill, for eating up all the time. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no,
2: don't don't apologize. <laughs> I actually, I'm, there's a book. I just uh, took a picture of it at Target the other day, and it's stop apologizing. Right, okay, we great. have to stop apologizing, and okay, we just cheers. have to start being who we really are. And right, it's okay. Right on. It's yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, where would you like to begin
0: your journey, your story? Ooh. What would you like to share? Well, first, I want to take a breath.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> um okay so I'm Jill Rowley and uh, I'm 47 years old and I am a mom I am a stepmom I am a wife I'm a daughter I'm a sister and uh, hopefully um, I'm a friend and um, I see a lot of myself in your story Timo um, a lot of similar experiences in terms of um, uh, divorce, in terms of uh, violence, in terms of uh, infidelity and self-medicating and um, wounded child. a, a lot yeah. of a lot of wounded child. Um, I love my parents, all, however many of them that I have at this point. Um, my, um, what I really want to do is, is, is I've made a commitment to breaking the cycles and I've done a lot of that in my life. Um, I didn't want to, uh, get pregnant and then get married. Uh, that was a cycle I wanted to, to break in our family history. Um, turns out, uh, sidebar seven weeks or sorry, three weeks before my wedding, that had been planned for a very long time. I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> so <laughs> almost check on breaking that cycle, but uh, I forgive myself. Um, the, my, my battle, uh, I, 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 would, I would say that I am an ick and I battle ism. And you can put a lot of different things into the ick and a lot of different things into the ism. Um, I have been very, very, very hesitant and reluctant and unwilling uh, to label myself as an alcoholic. It's a label I just don't want. But in the recent work that I've done, realize that it is there, and um, uh, the I've self-medicated with some form of um, substance. Uh, whether it be work, which is really probably my biggest addiction that I will continue to battle, can you share with people what you? Sure. Um, what so you do? I I am so proud of uh, college. Right, I was the first in my family um, to achieve a four year degree at um, a great institution, University of Virginia. Um, I was a straight A student in, um, in growing up and that was to, I think, cope with all the chaos and trauma around me. That was my way of owning my future. And, um, it didn't mean that I didn't drink and smoke pot. Um, I lost my virginity at 15 to a 21 year old and, uh, continue to have sex with people I shouldn't have been having sex with. Um, who didn't deserve um, me, and I was looking for something. Um, my dad, my mom, my dad divorced when I was five. My dad's an amazing person; he's an amazing human being, and um, but he wasn't really there. And he was in the navy, and he was out on ships, and um, you. Know, my mom's a difficult, loving, wonderful, amazing, resilient, incredible woman, um, who also uh just really wasn't there um for us as kids and i i i cry knowing she's going to hear this i forgive her and i'm so proud of her and i love her so much and um she was quote there physically so she she gets an amazing amount of credit for you know she was a working mom a single working mom um But I come from a long line of ics who battle ism. So what you mean by that for, you mean addicts? Yeah. Yeah. Addicts of some form Mm -hmm. of substance. Substance. My substance has been work is the, is the ever present. And and like you, Timo, incredible work ethic, um, incredibly resilient, and also don't want to disappoint anyone. Like ah, seriously, <laughs> just don't want to not want not show up and don't want to show up in the wrong state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived in Silicon Valley for 20 years. I lived in the Bay Area and I was really fortunate to be one of the first hundred employees at Salesforce.com. And um, Salesforce is now um, a valued at over... I, I don't even know what the number is, I should, but over 10 billion in annual revenue now. And I was one of the first. And I, that's where I really got my 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 tech bug and, and the whole scene mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, which is the intensity that I f- still feel like, I'm out of it two and a half years, I moved to Charleston, and I feel like I'm still detoxing from Silicon Valley. And so uh, uh, lots of promiscuous behavior in terms of drinking too much, um, definitely smoked pot, knew to stay away from cocaine, um, given something that i had seen in my family, and knew that I, I had the ick and ism in my, in my history and in my blood and in my DNA and, um, and, and on both sides. So both sides of my mom and both sides of my dad's family. So fortunately, and the one time I did try cocaine and aspen, it it, it, it I, I couldn't get up until three o'clock the next day, right? I couldn't hit the mountain because it was so debilitating to me physically it was it was awful. Um, so I knew that was something I had to stay away from i I had done um, uh, ecstasy in my early twenties, but again, those are the things that I knew that I couldn't handle. I couldn't handle, yeah right it would It would take me too off too far off my path. And my path as, as my one financial goal uh, that I had set was to save a million dollars by the time I was 30. And for me, it wasn't about how much money I could make. It was about how much money I could save. So getting the job and getting into tech was hard because I didn't have the experience. But once I, once I, got someone to take a chance on me, I performed, I outperformed. I wanted to be the best. I always want to be the best. I want to be, I always want to be getting better, right? And it's not that I want to beat other people. It's just, I want to be this best version of myself. And I, um, I got fired from Salesforce and, um, and the day that my boss fired me, he called the founder and CEO of one of my customers. And said we had to let her go, but you need to hire her. And um, I took some time. It was it was so difficult being fired when I loved my work. I was really incredibly good at it. So I have a question. If I can. absolutely how was your drinking? What was your
0: drinking like during this time?
2: Yeah. Um, it was. It what was. What was
0: your ritual? Your
2: routine? How did you? Yeah. Yeah, the ritual and routine right before I got sober the first time, which was actually five years ago, um, it was uh, my husband and I. He would he does all the cooking, grocery shopping. I'm changing that, um, and we would sit at the in the kitchen um, in the what, the island, mm-hmm. right? And I would sit in the chair, and he'd be cooking, and we'd open our first bottle of wine, and usually before dinner was served, um, we'd be on to our second bottle of wine. Um, my routine was I didn't need a whole lot of sleep, right? At, I, I I just didn't need a whole lot of sleep. So I'd get up at like five in the morning if I hadn't already been working through the night. Mm-hmm. And I'd get up at five in the morning, I'd pound coffee. And then by one or two in the afternoon I'd start the diet cokes. And then by five thirty six I'd wanna drink, right? I'd wanna come down. I'd wanna chill out. I'd wanna um, and I was in sales, so I traveled a lot so that I went to a lot of events and a lot of parties and there's intense drinking and, yeah. and I, you know, I was proud of how much I was able to drink. Right. And, and, and for me, from a drinking perspective, I kept it to beer and wine because I knew that liquor could like, Just I not throw you over the edge and you'd be out of control. I knew, I knew how to put, put at least some safe guardrails and boundaries around the 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 bad things that i was doing right um it, drinking and then pot together was a bad combination for me and and before i got sober i was doing a lot of that and mind you i had children right so i'm a mom and i'm a stepmom and we had um full custody of my three stepchildren and um you know they they their mother um lost custody because her alcoholism. And I was, I, I, I was in such denial that, you know, she was an alcoholic. I was not right. I drank a lot. I had a dependency on alcohol. I was self-medicating, but she was a full blown alcoholic. So when you compare the two, like that's, and that's when, that's when you know, you're truly, you're truly an ick, right? You're an alcoholic. If you are saying her alcoholism is, is way at a different order of magnitude than mine, right? Because I was always able to get up in the morning and go be successful in tech and make millions of dollars, right? If I'm making millions of dollars, then how in the hell can I be an alcoholic? Well-
0: You're a functioning alcoholic.
2: Highly You're functioning highly, alcoholic.
0: As many are. Yeah. And, and, in, and that's it, why I think it's such an issue for so many people and I see it in my practice highly successful individuals and just pounding it at night. And it's, it's very difficult for people to admit that this is a problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, my quote rock bottom was in 2014, I was in the, in the room with my therapist and, um, this is, this is after I had decided to go off antidepressants without any medical supervision. Ooh, that can be a roller coaster. Um, A really dark, the darkest place I've ever been. And that was in December of 2014. And it was really, really dark. And I was really, really scared. And I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to get through it. And I remember my husband going with me to the medical doctor to figure out what it was I was dying from because I thought I was dying. And in that session, I realized I was suffering from depression and I wasn't dying. And that's when I agreed to go to therapy to, to really prioritize getting better and that was in the beginning of 2015 that I'm now in therapy and the therapist kept wanting, I kept feeling like she wanted to diagnose me as an alcoholic Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and I'm like, literally like, look bitch, (laughs) I'm not an alcoholic. Yes, I have an dependency on alcohol. Yes, I drink too much. Yes, the habit that my husband and I have created together as a couple is horrible for us and for our children but, I'm, but, but I, there's something wrong with me that it goes way deeper than alcohol. And so I said, okay, I'm not going to drink again. I'm going to stop drinking because you have to help me figure out what is wrong with me. And so that's when February 14th, 2015, I had my last drink and... I I was in therapy and and figured out what it was, what I thought was really wrong with me, and it was my addiction to the internet and social media. Um, I realized that the speech, because I was a professional speaker, I was making $20,000 for an hour of my time. Mm -hmm. And I would fly to China, and I would fly to London, and I would fly to... Missouri and I would fly to and I was I was I was a professional speaker making $20,000 for 60 minutes of my time to teach other people how to stop selling and start serving their customer. And I realized in my speech the way I would open my speech was with a confession. A confession of I'm married kissed a lot of frogs before I met my prince, I'm a mom of four children, I'm a social networking addict. And then I would reel off my stats. I would know exactly how many followers I had on Twitter. I would know exactly how many, quote, friends I had on Facebook and exactly how many connections I had on LinkedIn. And I would confess this social networking addiction and I wasn't dealing with it and in therapy this is back in 2015 we now know a lot more about this addiction to our devices which I had to turn off my phone so what I would like to do at this time Timo
0: I want to bring you into the conversation Thank you for
1: sharing that, by the way.
0: Yes, I do too. Thank you, because I want to get this dialogue um, going. And so, what are you hearing in your
1: story? It just the way what resonates with me is remembering how, you know, this sort of like like you know years and years of sort of mental and psychological gymnastics that I I felt like I had to do in order just to try to mitigate against admitting how out of control I actually was, and in in, in many, you know, it's also like you're, it's, it's, it's easier to sort of offset that based on your accomplishments, you know, and based on the appearance, based on optics, and also based on what the culturally sort of acceptable image or images of alcoholics and addicts are, which generally are are, you know, they're, they're not really, they're usually sort of portrayed as not being integrated or, or being like catastrophically out of control, like having lost your job or being broke or in the gutter or losing your house. When the truth is, is that like people are able to, you know, even people that are in the highest functioning and the most successful sort of echelons of life have powerful psychological problems, you know, and, uh, you know, and like depression, anxiety, Like long-term post-traumatic stress, which are, you know, it's it's just a. I think it's it's I I think um you know it's just it's it's harder to actually uh, really sort of rigorously confront that when when you have so many signals from society that like are sort of function to offset you know the you know like you you know one success is basically and especially in a society like this one ends up sort of being primary. You end up sort of conceptualizing your life in terms of like what your achievements are as opposed to just basically what the texture of your even life is, you know? It's like what one's actual psychological, personal like experience ends up, you know, it's like we're too busy. I have too much stuff to do. <laughs> it's not a priority. Like how I feel ultimately, it has to get really fucking bad before people, you know, oftentimes go like, wait a minute, maybe I need to like... Just take a take a step back, you know. But usually people don't do it until they they have they have to, you know. Um, so I can relate to that aspect of your of your of your experience, which is like being like you know, like I mean, for me, I knew I knew by any conventional definition I was an alcoholic, but I was also really excelling in my field and doing very well, and also you know, I, I was able to I was able to use that to rationalize my you know, to sort of procrastinate, to put off actually taking my self-care more seriously.
0: Well, I used to remember when I did recording with you and you said to me, you were the most creative when you smoked pot.
1: No, that and was a big, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, and I rem- and it was, anyway, go on. But it was, I, I remember this over our uh, coffee crumb cake and, and coffee <laughs> breaks.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think the thing for me, what, what ended up, you know, there's, when you become, when you become like, you know, sort of long-term habituated to, you know, and that, and in my case, just smoking pot every day, mm-hmm. you know, you, you start to, you, not only is it integrated in the entire rhythm of the whole, your rhythm of your entire psyche, you know, and your, the and a practical rhythm in terms of all, all the activities and all the work that I was, was doing, you know, the idea of removing it, it's almost, you start to wonder, I mean, this is, this is, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a common experience for people, creative people, I think, you know, from from any sort of realm of professional creative life, and even in, in a modern life, of when, like, removing removing substances that they become acclimated to, they wonder if they sort of still have it anymore, if mm-hmm. they still are capable, like, it, it's like they think, you know, they have, like, I think a reasonable fear that they, uh, you know, that they're not going to be able to access that kind of creativity or that sort of fearlessness or of, like, imagination, but which when I, when I when I got sober, I had that in, in spades, I mean, in a really profound way because I was like, oh my God, have I just spent the last almost 20 years just sort of like a, a handicapping myself completely? Um, the truth was, and as it turned out, and the good news was is that I did a session. I was invited to do a session after I'd only been sober for about three weeks, and I heading over to the studio with all my stuff, all my gear, I was like terrified. I was like, oh my God, what if I blow it? But the truth is, is that like once I just settled in and I relaxed, it was great. I crushed it basically. So that was a huge personal victory for me knowing like, oh, if anything, I was like all that stuff. I mean, my my own, my own anecdotal, like sort of my, my own, my own uh, opinion about this is that like getting high, like maybe sometimes you can actually really have great ideas or it really can mm-hmm. inspire you in a way that is like a you know, really productive or really powerfully imaginative or something. But that happens like huh. maybe 15% of the time for me. Anyway, the rest of the time I would make me self-conscious and freeze and like panic and also overthink. And like on balance, it was like a, I, in retrospect, it was a complete hindrance to it. You know?
0: I love what you just shared. And Jill, I want to ask you, what is sobriety for you right now? Yeah.
2: So I want to thank you, Meg, for, Inviting me to do the podcast.
0: You're welcome.
2: When you invited me in December to be on this podcast, because I had shared with you my sobriety, my 1,800 and some odd days of Mm -hmm. not having a drink. And you invited me to do the podcast on sobriety. And I realized as I went to prepare, which I prepare for everything in life, is that I wasn't sober. And although I hadn't had a drink, I had started smoking pot again. And so we physically moved to Charleston, South Carolina, to, to, to play the back nine of life very differently than the front nine of life. And... I remember the first time that I took a hit off of 8-Pen, and I was like, okay, this is May of 2018, and we had been here seven months, maybe more, um, and I'm like, oh, okay. I can do this, this is, I can have fun again, right? Like, I don't have to be the sober, boring person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I was occasionally smoking pot and um, raising our first round of venture capital funding and occasionally smoking pot and then I looked in the mirror and said, why am, I, why am I still chasing after the next career opportunity when I want to live a different lifestyle? So, how, so after I invited you,
0: you started doing some soul searching here. That's what you told me. And you made a, the decision to stop smoking pot. How does it feel? To not be partaking in getting high. How does it feel to be
2: sober? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm fighting for my sobriety. Okay. And what comes up for you with that? What are you feeling with that? I'm feeling a lot. A lot. And I know that I have to feel to heal. And I, you know, we make these New Year's resolutions. And I said, I'm not, I don't make New Year's resolutions. I made a 31 day plus two because we're February 3rd and we're recording the podcast. And so I had to be truly sober to I couldn't, I couldn't be smoking pot and do a podcast on sobriety. So do you,
0: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Do you want to comment on that? Me? Yeah. Uh, I have my face, I have, I have Timo on FaceTime and I'm, and, and, and actually, I, I, you know, I would like to, to say something in response to this. Part of my journey and the reason I chose this topic, I had an eating disorder And if I didn't come to terms with that, I probably would have ended up with some heart damage and some other problems. Editing a lot out, I was anorexic, bulimic. I felt like I could hide it. It was my coping mechanism. I was in my mid-20s. I was highly successful as an art director and designer. I went out on my own, but inside I was falling apart. Binging and purging was my way of coping with stress and dealing with the world. And when I finally got into therapy and I was in it very shortly, my, my therapist said, the next time you want to binge and purge, I want you to sit with what you feel. And I remember looking at her, and I said this before in a podcast, I've no fucking clue what you're talking about. I don't know what it means to feel. It was never safe to feel growing up in my house. I lived in, my parents did their best. I lived in crazy town. I was one of 10 kids. I was the middle kid. I got lost. I didn't, the only way I knew how to shine was to do my art. And then I became an art director. And I didn't know who I was. So to sit with what I felt, I get it. It was terrifying. I thought I was gonna die. It was my coping and survival mechanism. I had to deal with abuse growing up. I stepped away from a family for 15 years because nobody wanted to talk about the secrets. I get it, I get it. It wasn't alcohol, it wasn't drugs, but it was a way of finding relief. I see that with kids that come in to see me, they cut. I get a lot of kids with eating disorders. I hold this space and I have lovely individuals like the two of you that talk about your journey and your recovery. It is so powerful and so courageous to allow ourselves to feel who we are and not define ourselves by external factors, by our jobs and by what we do. Who are we? What is that? We are perfect in our imperfections. And it has been very, this is probably the most I've revealed about myself on this show. It was, I lived in survival mode growing up. And I get, I forgive, and I have much gratitude. I see family members so struggling with addiction and recovery and i say to everyone listening with a therapist or 12 step or whatever you need find that sacred safe space that you can share what you feel so you feel like you can live in the world an authentic version of who you are it's beautiful it thank is you beautiful. thank you so what I I would like to do and we're we're approaching <clears throat> the conclusion of this podcast and I want to thank the both of you. I want to thank you both for allowing me to open up more. Because I feel that this journey of recovery for all of us has made us such better people. I know how to hold the space for others that show up in my office. There's no judgment. We're exactly where we're supposed to be in our lives. So having the the opposite of addiction is community, it's people, it's connection. Yeah. And, right. I, and I go to, I, I said, I, and I met Jill at Orange Theory. I love Orange Theory because it's a place that I can connect to other people mm-hmm. and just be so totally present in the moment. And Timo, what you have offered in terms of how you showed up for me when I, you produced my CD, I felt so special. It was such a healing process for me. You have a heart that brings out the best potential in musicians and in people that you work with creatively. You've always had that. And you get to share it each and every day. So I want to thank you both for being here. I thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. And... um, I send blessings to everyone who are on their road to recovery. There are others out there that can help support you in this journey. You do not have to do it alone. So, until we meet again, may you have an awesome day and may you appreciate the light that shines through your window in the morning. And good luck and be well to all. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.